This is Ozarks at Large for Thursday, January 26th, 2023 on your public radio station, 91.3 KUAF. I'm Kyle Kellams. We continue to thaw after the snowfall Tuesday night and early Wednesday morning. Several school districts didn't have in-person classes again today or started later than usual. After some melting today, lows tonight again in the 20s in northwest Arkansas, around 30 for much of the Arkansas River Valley. Lots more melting tomorrow with highs from the upper 40s to mid-50s across the region. Now, if you squint and look at the forecast for early next week, the National Weather Service suggests there is a chance of freezing rain across northwest Arkansas and northeast Oklahoma Monday night and Tuesday. Right now, the forecast has the chances of freezing rain at 50-50. Our forecast for later this hour, a visit with John Jetter, the conductor and music director of the Fort Smith Symphony. We caught up with him in Fort Smith recently to talk about why the time between concerts is not idle time, and we asked what's ahead in 2023. We'll also talk with Dr. Anna Lemke, author of the book Dopamine Nation, Finding Balance in the Age of Indulgence. First this Thursday, health care facilities expanded or have made plans to grow as northwest Arkansas's populations continue to swell. But many people find care outside the region. Ozarks at Large's Anna Pope reports $240 million of the nearly $1 billion spent on the region's Medicare enrollees health care spent on services outside the region in 2019. That's according to an analysis released this morning from the Arkansas Center for Health Improvement. Welcome Health's 10-year-old building looks new. Walking inside the main entrance, oak lines the walls and natural light streams through the walkway. The low-income free health center moved from its previous home, the old armory, to its 10,000-square-foot building. The center's officials and community members are celebrating the building's 10th anniversary. Monica Fisher-Massey, executive director of the center, says the building is about dignity. So our patients respect where they are now. Not only do they get quality care, but they get the quality care in a wonderful building that they respect as well. Welcome Health opened in a church basement in 1986. Today, it serves about 2,000 patients a year from counties in the northwestern part of the state. She says the center experienced many changes because of growth and consistently evaluates patients' needs. And based on those needs, we expand our services. But of course, what it, what it takes also is raising more funds. Mm-hmm. You know, we operate on donations. We get money from foundations, from individuals, from civic clubs, from uh, churches, and that's just a constant effort, raising the funds so we can sustain what we're doing now and expand. I just want to say quickly to all of you, to the community, thank you for so much. Welcome Health is not the only center to encounter more demand. For instance, new or expanding health care facilities, additional workers and programs like the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences internal residency program have been announced. The region's health care needs are estimated through organizations such as the Northwest Arkansas Council. Dr. Joe Thompson, the president and CEO of the Arkansas Center for Health Improvement, says its analysis of Medicare enrollees is the center's first report adding data to the estimations. We saw a need for people to leave Northwest Arkansas for multiple different types of services, whether those were medical services like neurologic uh, visits or gastrointestinal visits 
or other surgical visits. We looked at cardiovascular because that's the most common cause of death, and we thought that would be a good place to start. There are about 85,000 to 90,000 people on Medicare in Northwest Arkansas, and 22% sought care outside of the region in 2019, according to the report. Thompson says this reflects the region's growth. The Census Bureau reported dramatic population growth over the last decade, and I think stakeholders in Northwest Arkansas, including the Northwest Arkansas Council and other hospitals, have recognized that the growing population is outpacing the available services. So while we didn't talk to individuals about why they left, I think we are seeing an impact of the growth of the population in Northwest Arkansas outpacing the available healthcare resources in Northwest Arkansas. Out of about 75,000 cardiology procedures on the region's Medicare enrollees, about 11% were done outside the region in 2019, according to the report. In the analysis, it is also mentioned there were nine cardiothoracic surgeons carrying out coronary artery bypass grafting surgery. This is a surgery commonly used to treat coronary artery disease. It involves using veins from other parts of the body to restore blood flow. The report noted this raises concerns about future provider supply because five of those surgeons were over 60. Thompson says the health care challenges in the region are different from the rest of the state. In rural Arkansas, we have you know, shrinking communities that are putting pressure on some of our rural hospitals, while in northwest Arkansas, we're having dramatic population growth that's putting a different type of pressure on our health care system. The data that we have, however, informs both and I think can lead us to make better decisions for the state as a whole. For Ozarks at Large in the Bruce and Ann Applegate News Studio 1 at the Carver Center for Public Radio, I'm Anna Pope. Monday was Maternal Health Awareness Day, and the Arkansas Center for Health Improvement, or ACI, used the observation to try to raise awareness that Arkansas ranks last when it comes to health for mothers. Ozarks at Large's Rachel Sanchez-Smith called the president and CEO of ACI, Dr. Joe Thompson, to talk with him about maternal health in the state. I think the experiences of moms, families, newborns, as reflected in the statistics, are a real cause for concern and a call to action. We have, some, we have the highest maternal mortality rates. We have the second highest teen pregnancy rates. We have the third highest infant mortality rates. This shows that we're really not providing a holistic approach to childbirth that we need to be providing families across our state. And Dr. Thompson, I'm curious, I mean, as bad as these numbers are, have they been on the increase, the decline, or has this been a story we've known for a while? It's interesting, Rachel. In the United States, we've actually seen an increase in maternal mortality over the last few decades. In the 80s, it was about seven moms per 100,000 births that we lost. Today, across the United States, it's 17 per 100,000. So it's more than doubled in the last few decades. And unfortunately, our state has some of the worst statistics present of any state across the nation. And one thing really stood out to me uh, when I was reading through some of the overviews for maternal health is specifically um, there was, you know, a statement by a 2018 report by the University of Arkansas um, concluded that if Arkansas were a country, its infant mortality rate rate would rank worse than 74 countries, including Serbia, Cuba, and Ukraine. That's a loaded statement. 
Um, what kind of factors go into a comparison like this? I mean, what are we looking at? Rachel, I think it unfortunately is a loaded statement for calling us to action. Uh, the statistics are frequently the same. It's the maternal deaths per 100,000 people. Uh, and, and that number doesn't lie. Now, there are a lot of things that go into that. I think for our state and for our families, our moms have more health problems when they get pre pregnant. We have more obesity. We have more hypertension. We have more diabetes in women when they become pre pregnant. We have access issues, particularly in rural parts of our state, about how to get and how early people get prenatal care and how good that prenatal care is. We have hospitals that are on the brink of closure that if we lose, we won't have birthing sites near where parents live. And then obviously, once the mom and the baby go home, we need to have supportive mechanisms in place, both for the new infant, so that makes sure that they're feeding well and growing, but also for the mom so that postpartum depression is recognized early and that we have treatment in place for that throughout you know, the months and maybe even year that it takes for moms to adequately get past that experience. Well, I think even in looking at this data and this information, one of the big questions I had at the beginning was, you know, what what is the time frame that we're looking at? You know, what do we consider a maternal death and kind of what factors and a lot of the uh, spotlight seems to go at very early stages where moms are just beginning to come home and getting some of that postpartum care but really it stretches out far long afterwards doesn't it I, I think we in the united states have focused a lot on childbirth the specific activity itself and not enough on the upstream issues that affect a mom's ability to have a healthy pregnancy and the preparation that she and the family make for then caring for the infant after they go home, and then after the birth, having the supportive structures in place so that that infant and that family have the best chances for a good, healthy outcome, and that child becomes a happy, playful uh, youngster in our communities. And looking at, you know, the demographics of what what mothers are, um, are healthy and are, are more prone to, you know, the sad saddening statistic that we have in Arkansas and a lot of the reality, what group is being most affected here um, as we look kind of at the different either rural, urban, um, by ethnicity, you know, those kinds of demographic factors? Well, I, I clearly think all groups are affected with some of the rural issues that we have, being able to access uh, care easily and available. But we do have some, some uh, racial and ethnic issues. Our, our communities of color and our lower income communities, clearly there's a, a gradient there where they have far worse outcomes. For our African-American moms in the state, their maternal mortality is twice that of their white counterparts. So this really is you know, a racial and ethnic disparity, as well as it is a broad challenge for all of our population. You know, we sit here a lot of the day just trying to figure out what the problem is. And I that's a lot of AKI's mission is to, you know, to figure out what what problems Arkansas is encountering. And then the other part is how do we fix them and, and how can we aid these issues? What are there any efforts that AKI has recommended to kind of combat these the staggering rates? Well, I'm lucky to lead this organization, as you mentioned, whose mission is to improve the health of all Arkansans. And part of our reason for calling this issue out is because our statistics are so poor. What we have done is we've looked across the nation at what other states, other locales have done. Uh, one of the things in front of the legislature now is extending postpartum coverage in Medicaid. Today, 
a pregnant mom delivers and 60 days later she loses her insurance coverage. Uh, there's a bill in the legislature that it would, would extend that to 12 months. Uh, that would provide the financial cover and support so that a mom, if she had postpartum depression or other needs, could get the care that she needed so that she could be a successful mom to that newborn infant. We think that's one step, but there are a number. Home visiting programs that we know work and lowers infant mortality. Prenatal education that we know increases the likelihood that the mom's going to breastfeed. Health issues before the mom gets pregnant so that she has a healthy body ready to carry that baby and be able to deliver a healthy newborn to our state. Dr. Thompson, is there anything else um, that you think is important and worth mentioning? I think there's not a magic bullet here. This is a challenge for our state. Uh, clearly, there's an economic risk that comes, and so that our lower income communities and communities of color are bearing a greater burden of these risks. Uh, and I really do think it's a call to action for all sectors, the business sector, employers, the healthcare sector, our public health colleagues to come together and find new and workable solutions for our state. Dr. Joe Thompson is the president and CEO of ACI, Arkansas Center for Health Improvement, and he spoke with Ozarks at Large's Rachel Sanchez-Smith earlier this week. The Arkansas legislature moved dozens of bills forward yesterday with little contention or debate. Josie Lenora with our partner station KUAR has more. The bills passed through the Senate largely dealt with the appropriation of funds for government departments, a bill that would require all flags bought using public funds to be made in the United States, passed committee unanimously. In a press release, the governor said she will sign the bill today. Meanwhile, the Arkansas House passed a bill prohibiting sex offenders from owning or using drones. The bill preceded another cluster of appropriation and funding bills voted through the chamber. The Senate Judiciary Committee debated a piece of legislation that would expand Good Samaritan laws to apply to suicide prevention services. Another bill would replace the term child pornography in criminal codes with child abuse images. Both pieces of legislation passed through the committee without dissent. In Little Rock, I'm Josie Lenora. The 2023 Northwest Arkansas Health Summit will take place at the Jones Center in Springdale tomorrow. It will include a keynote speech from Dr. Chriselle Nash, the Medical Director for Health Equity and Public Programs at Arkansas Blue Cross and Blue Shield. The summit's focus this year will be on the growing importance and integration of community health workers to drive inclusivity and health equity. The summit, which has several workshops and breakout sessions scheduled, is sold out. The National Science Foundation is awarding Erica Westerman, a recently tenured associate professor of biological sciences at the University of Arkansas, with a faculty early career development award to support her research on the role of genetics and ambient light in shaping the visual sensitivity and behavior of butterflies. The five-year, $1.35 million award will be used to study the visual tuning of butterflies, largely drawn from the northwest Arkansas region. Visual tuning is a theory supposing that species sharing the same habitat are adapted to the most sensitive to the color of light present in that specific habitat. And the Marsha and Marty Martin family is making a $5 million gift to the Razorback Foundation in support of Arkansas athletics in recognition the already existing Basketball Performance Center on the U of A campus will be named in their honor and unveiled on March 4th. The name of the facility was formally considered and approved by the University of Arkansas Board of Trustees at its scheduled meeting today. The Marsha and Marty Martin Family Basketball Performance Center, home to both Razorback men's and women's basketball teams and serves as their training facility, 66,000 square foot facility, it opened in 2015, includes two full-court gymnasiums, locker rooms, weight room, 
and athletic training room, coaches' offices, team meeting rooms, student-athlete lounges, study areas, and an equipment room. The official naming of the facility will be celebrated at a ceremony on March 4th. That's before the Arkansas-Kentucky men's basketball game taking place at Bud Walton Arena in Fayetteville. I'm Maria Hinojosa, this week on Latino USA. A close look at the animated Latina icon, Dora the Explorer. We dive into what propelled her rise to preschool programming dominance. This idea of not building barriers gave extra meaning and heart and urgency to the mission of the show. That's this week on Latino USA. Latino USA, Sunday afternoon at 3 o'clock on 91.3 KUAF. Later on Ozarks at Large today, the relationship between our bodies and addiction. We talk with Dr. Anna Lemke about her book, Dopamine Nation, Finding Balance in the Age of Indulgence. Dopamine and other neurotransmitters are these little chemicals that are released by the presynaptic neuron, go across the synapse, that gap between neurons bind to the postsynaptic receptor, and essentially allow for finer-tuned modulation of these electrical circuits. That conversation later on today's program, and then a longer one with Dr. Lemke on Weekend Ozarks at Large, Sunday morning at 9 on 91.3 KUAF. I'm Paul Gatling, and this is today's Northwest Arkansas Business Journal Report. Bentonville apparel and manufacturing company Junk Brands is looking for a new president. Craig Lyle departed the business earlier this month, just a few weeks shy of six years in the position. We will have some comments from Lyle on today's show. Plus, an Oklahoma solar power company has entered the northwest Arkansas market, and Walmart raises hourly wages for its workers. Those stories and more are on the way next on today's Northwest Arkansas Business Journal Report. Support for the Northwest Arkansas Business Journal Report is provided by the Arkansas State Chamber of Commerce and Associated Industries of Arkansas. The Chamber's mission is to promote a pro-business, free enterprise agenda and prevent legislation, regulation, and rules that hinder business. More at ArkansasStateChamber.com. First Security is proud to be only in Arkansas. They offer smart solutions for personal and business banking, plus convenient services and community investment. First Security. Member FDIC. Equal housing lender. Off to find the next adventure. That's how Craig Lyle described his recent departure as company president from the apparel and manufacturing business Junk Brands in Bentonville. For nearly six years, he led the multi-million dollar business known for its athletic headbands in various styles and patterns. Under his leadership, Junk Brands hired more employees and diversified apparel offerings. The company built a new, larger Bentonville headquarters and secured more retail partnerships and licensing agreements. Lyle has always been humble about his role and credits the company culture and the employees for Junk Brand's success. In a recent interview, he said without trying to sound too politically correct, it was simply the right time for him to go and do something else. You know, I've never really... Um, um you know, being able to wrap my head around exactly what I am or am not supposed to be doing. <laughs> um, and I don't mean just the junk, I mean, just in general. And, you know, it, it felt, um, you know, it felt right when I joined junk almost six years ago. Um, it's a completely different 
uh, size a company now than it was uh, when, when I joined it. And, um, you know, I just think it's the, the time to go and find a, a new challenge. Again, Northwest Arkansas, so many of them. Um, you know, not not going to lie to you. There's been there's been some some phone calls and some things knocking on the door. Um, you know, in the last probably three or four or five months uh, already. And you know, I think for me, I'm just always uh, someone that has to fully commit to something. Um, mm-hmm. And so I, I think it was it was it was time to to, to find uh, to find the next challenge. And there's such a great team there at Junk. Uh, there's such a, a great group of people. Um, you know, I'm going to miss obviously working with them. Um, but they're also it's almost like uh, you know kids growing up, um, and you know not that uh, not that I was a dad by any stretch of the imagination, but uh, you know I was just needed less and less in, in what they were doing. So um, time to go figure out something else. You, you've talked about the, those people, and I've seen your your LinkedIn content, and, and that company culture is always. And you and I have talked about that before. You've worked hard to be a good leader who creates a good company cultures how did you how did you achieve that at junk brands what was the most important aspect of making sure that you had that there with the company yeah you know i, I know you're talking to me today but uh you know obviously the the best you know way to figure out if that was actually true or not would be to talk to the other folks that are that, that mm-hmm. are there um you know i i always believe in you know truth and and and, and openness that then creates trust um, and so I, I think for, for me, it's like I felt like, you know, I try to connect with people on, on that level, um, really, truly, you know, trying to figure out what uh, what is needed, what's making them tick and, you know, what they need to, to do their job better or, or be happier at it. And, um, you know, I felt at least from my side, and that's why I can only speak from the one side, um, from my side, I, I felt like we, we did that pretty well at Junk um, over the time that I was there. Um, but again, I think your, your your best answer is always going to come from the, the, the people on the on the other side of it. Um, well, I can't speak for them. Yeah. Well, oh, this is a question that maybe you 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 could answer, and it goes to that company culture and making those connections. You know, you you managed to grow a company through a global pandemic, which created a whole new set of challenges. And just you know, from from that perspective, from a leadership perspective, what did the the pandemic teach you about how people work and how work and life interact? My goodness, that is a big question. Um, I, I, I could tell you, um, you know, I think probably in the last couple, three weeks, uh, um, you know, I've been reflecting back on things probably more than I have. You know, you, you're kind of in it, you're just doing it, you're just going. And, you know, obviously when the when the time came to, 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 you know, kind of move on, you kind of get a chance to kind of go back and go through things. Um, I think when the pandemic, you know, it, when, it, when it started, um, I mean, I know you know this and remember this. I mean, I don't think we really called it a pandemic. We didn't really know what was happening. Um and so, I mean, we were, you know, we were going through, you know, is this going to be bad? Is this going to be good for us? You know, you know, is this, um, you know, and I, I mean that on a kind of on a, on, a, on a personal people level, like you just don't really know what it is yet. And then, mm-hmm. you know, once it obviously started to take off, you realize it's going to impact day to day and people are working from home. And, um, I, you know, for us, we were very fortunate, you know, the, the business, you know, being, you know, quite a bit online. Um, it took off for us, you know, uh, and the workload went up, but then, you know, kind of balance between now you've got half the people in the building and half the people not in the building. We were learning like everybody else was, um, you know, what remote work looks like, what conferencing, video conferencing. I mean, we were, <laughs> we were, we were definitely learning things that we, we hadn't done before. And I, I used to, to joke about it. I would, I'd spend, um, 
30 minutes driving to work, then sit in my office for eight hours on video calls, and then 30 minutes driving home. And I'm like, why did I go to the office today? Like, it didn't <laughs> make any sense. But, you know, I think I think we didn't win every time. And, you know, I, I think that's where, um, you know, obviously hindsight's beautiful, but we, we uh, um, the challenge of trying to keep that culture going when everyone's in a different place physically um, was brutal. Um, and I, I think people wanted it, but then trying – you know, not being able to get together made it hard. Um, the culture in the building continued to be the same, um, continued to be really a well-joined, well-connected well, uh, group. But that separation that happened between the uh, kind of the front office uh, folks and, 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 and what it was, our production fulfillment for, it, it, it definitely occurred. And it took us, oh, it took us probably almost a full year um, to really start to mend those bridges again. Um, and honestly, even even up until you know a week or so when I left, we're still working on that. I mean, it's still it's still a challenge. Um, you know, there's some folks that have never come back; they've stayed remote. There's some folks that are, you know, hybrid, and then there's obviously a good group of people that are still actually in the building. Um, mm -hmm. But I, I, you know, I would I would say probably from the the from the challenges that that came from it, culture was the biggest. Um, but it was actually good, too, because it put a focus more on culture. You, you became aware of it more. Um, and so some pe people that had, you know, taken things for granted um, realized that it was something that, you know, you needed to work on, which – so there's there's always silver linings and everything. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's, it, it's crazy. I mean, just in general, like how different it is now than it was three years ago, not just a junk, but everywhere. Like, you know, what is and what is not acceptable or what is, what is not appealable is, is, is crazy how much it's changed. Courtney and Bo Barrett launched Junk Brands in 2011, then sold the business to Bentonville headwear apparel company Outdoor Cap in 2017. There has been no official news about Lyle's replacement. In other news this week, Oklahoma Energy Services Company 820 Solar has expanded to the northwest Arkansas market with a Fayetteville office at 5 East Mountain Street. A spokeswoman said the market entry would create 20 jobs, 820 Solar has completed projects for the iCenter and Field Agent in Northwest Arkansas and is working with Fayetteville firm Leffler Capital as a developer. Walmart on Tuesday said it will raise average hourly wages for its U.S. store workers starting next month. The wage hikes will lift the average hourly wage pay to $17.50 from the current $17 an hour and will reflect in March 2nd paychecks. The hourly minimum wage will vary between $14 and $19, depending on location. Walmart employs 1.6 million U.S. workers. And Northwest Arkansas's four largest cities had cumulative sales tax revenue of $8.82 million from retail sales completed in November. That is up more than 12% from a year ago. For more news, visit us online at nwabusinessjournal.com, where you can follow our reporting each and every day. I'm Paul Gatling, and that's the Northwest Arkansas Business Journal Report. Until next time, thanks for listening. This is Ozarks at Large. The youngest of nine black students who desegregated Little Rock Central High School in 1957, Elizabeth Eckford, spoke about inequities in mental health care yesterday during a panel discussion hosted by University of Arkansas Pulaski Technical College. Eckford, who was just 15 years old at the time of the integration crisis, said she struggled for years to talk about the abuse she suffered at the hands of white students and adults. Among the nine, there's one who refuses to talk about it at all. 
but the majority uh, spent didn't talk about what it was like inside school for 30 years because that is a walk through pain when you first start to do that. Eckford credited years of therapy with helping her come to terms with the trauma she suffered. Clinical psychologist Patricia Griffin spoke about the tenuous history between the mental health care system and the black community, citing an apology issued by the American Psychological Association in 2021. And what was not included in that apology was the fact that APA was a promoter of racial hierarchy, comparative research studies trying to show the inferiority of black people, IQ test scores are used for that reason. All of these were initiatives led by APA. So the powers that be still have a lot of work to do. Little Rock drew national attention in 1957 when Eckford and eight other students attempted to integrate the previously all-white Central High, leading then-President Eisenhower to send federal troops to guard the students. All public schools in Little Rock were closed the following year amid protests by segregationists, including... The governor at the time, Orville Favis. For the Central Arkansas Library System, I'm Mark Chris with an Encyclopedia of Arkansas Minute. A Conway native and strident segregationist was the first woman to run for Arkansas governor. Virginia Lillian Morris was born in Conway in 1928. She married lawyer Jim Johnson in 1947 and worked on the state Senate staff after he became a senator in 1950. She chaired her husband's 1956 petition drive for a constitutional amendment to oppose court-ordered school desegregation. On April 30, 1968, she filed to run for governor as a Democrat against Governor Winthrop Rockefeller, who had defeated her husband for the position two years earlier. Running as a true conservative and a people's candidate, she promised to run Arkansas with housewife efficiency, clear of machine politics. She opposed gambling and legalizing mixed drinks and beat one of two candidates before losing the nomination to Marion Crank, who later lost to Rockefeller. Souring on Democratic politics, she never sought office again. Johnson died in 2007 and is buried in Conway's Oak Grove Cemetery. To learn more, visit encyclopediaofarkansas.net. This is Ozarks at Large. The human body is wired to experience pleasure, generally a good thing, and avoid pain, which is generally a bad experience. But in an age when access to almost everything can be instantaneous and continuous, the relationship between pleasure and pain can easily lead to addiction. In her book, Dopamine Nation, Finding Balance in the Age of Indulgence, Dr. Anna Lemke explores how addiction and efforts to end addiction can affect us. The book, a bestseller as a hardback, is now out in paperback, and this week she talked with us. We'll hear much of that conversation on Weekend Ozarks at Large, Sunday morning at 9 on KUAF. But here's an excerpt from the discussion about dopamine. So let's break it down. Dopamine is a chemical messenger. And its job is to bridge the gap between neurons. Neurons are the long spindly cells that conduct conduct the electrical circuits. These circuits make us who we are. We fine tune these circuits over the course of our entire lives. The circuits that we use more often get more robust. The circuits that we don't use often die away. Um, And dopamine and other neurotransmitters are these little chemicals that are released by the presynaptic neuron, go across the synapse, that gap between neurons bind to the postsynaptic receptor, and essentially allow for finer tuned modulation of these electrical circuits. Uh, in, In terms of what is dopamine's job, generally speaking, it has multiple jobs. So it is essential to the experience of pleasure, reward, and motivation. There's a dedicated reward circuit in the brain, 
where there are lots of dopamine releasing neurons. The more dopamine that's released in that circuit and the faster it's released, the more likely that substance or behavior is to be reinforcing, that is to say, potentially addictive. But dopamine also has other functions in the brain. For example, dopamine is released in another part of the brain called the substantia nigra, which is important to movement. When dopamine gets depleted in the substantia nigra, that leads to Parkinson's disease, which is a movement disorder. It's probably no coincidence that the same neurotransmitter that's involved in pleasure reward motivation is also involved in movement because of course, for most of human existence, we have had to move and do work to get our drug of choice. Even the most primitive worm will release dopamine in order to locomote in response to food in its environment. So it's a very ancient neurotransmitter. It allows for movement. It allows for the experience of pleasure, reward, and motivation. It allows us to approach signals in our environment that are important, that are things we need to remember. These are often reinforcing things that our brain wants to get us to do again, but not necessarily only reinforcing things. They can be things that are novel or new. Dopamine is very sensitive to novelty. It can even be aversive stimuli, uh, believe it or not. So painful or aversive stimuli, uh, dopamine will be released. So again, it's sort of our pay attention to this neurotransmitter. Different people may have different releases or amounts of release depending on what the stimuli is? Absolutely. This is called a drug of choice. What releases a lot of dopamine in your reward pathway may not release a lot of dopamine in mine and vice versa. Uh, for example, I'm virtually immune to alcohol and caffeine. They do nothing for me, but put a romance novel and a box of chocolates in my hand and I, I'll get going. Well, I want to ask you about that because early in Dopamine Nation, Finding Balance in the Age of Indulgence, you mentioned um, romance novels. And when I first saw that line, I thought you were kidding. But one can, <laughs> one can have, I mean, we, we know about drugs and alcohol and sex and food, but something like a romance novel or the genre can have a dopamine effect? Yeah. So what I was really trying to highlight here is the ways in which almost every human behavior has now become drugified in our modern world, made more reinforcing, more accessible, more potent, more abundant. Uh, for me, I did develop a minor addiction to fantasy escape fiction, especially romance novels. This was in midlife in my 40s. My gateway drug was the Twilight Saga. Uh, you know, a vampire romance series written for teenagers. It just kind of transported me in a way that was very reinforcing. I read it four times through, and then I began to read other vampire romance novels, and then I moved on to werewolves and necromancers and soothsayers and gem talkers and you name it. And over the course of two years, what happened was that my brain adapted to that stimulus. I needed more and more potent forms. Pretty soon I was reading graphic erotica, not consistent with my values. I was staying up till two in the morning. I was even at times bringing romance novels to work and reading in between patients. My relationships suffered as a, as a result. My work suffered. And these are some of the telltale signs of addiction, of the continued compulsive use of a substance or behavior despite our harm to self and or others. And I eventually got to a point where really the romance novels were choosing me. I wasn't choosing them. 
um, and the rest of my life became unenjoyable. And I think this is really a key piece of addiction, the subtle way in which we become narrowly focused on our drug of choice and can no longer take pleasure in other more modest rewards. And the technology is really fueling this because it was the Kindle and my nearly infinite access to easy reads and very uh, potent reads that really fueled my addiction. Dr. Anna Lemke is the author of Dopamine Nation, Finding Balance in the Age of Indulgence. The book is now available in paperback. We'll include much more from the conversation on Weekend Ozarks at Large. That's Sunday morning at 9 on KUAF. Theater Squared presents Kim's Convenience on stage through February 19th. Before it became an award-winning hit comedy series on Netflix, the playful, sweet, and hilarious story of the Kim family and their charming corner store was a smash on stage. 777-7477 or theater2.org for tickets. Granted, the last couple of days have not, for most of us, made us think instantly, let's get on the bike. But... We've got some biking news. You have more than nine months to be ready for the 2023 edition of the Chinkapin Hollow Grinder. It's a cycling event that offers three different race lengths from 42 to 109 miles, covering two states and offering participants a rare chance to ride on U.S. forest roads generally closed to cyclists. The race isn't until October 28th. Early bird registration, however, open right now. All three races start and finish in the Lake Weddington Recreation Area, which is located a few miles west of Fayetteville City Limits and has been managed by the U.S. Forest Service since 1954. Early bird entries are $55 for the 42-mile race, $65 if you want to go 63 miles, and then you pay more, $75, for the 109-mile race. The two longer races feature riding in both Arkansas and Oklahoma. There will be on-course support, a post-event party with food and beverages, finisher swag, and podium awards. Registration links and complete details can be found right now at chinkapinhollow.com. And while you're signing up for things to do on two wheels, you can sign up now for the spring 2023 edition of the Square to Square Bike Ride. The May 6th ride will start at Walker Park in Fayetteville, finish at Lawrence Plaza in Bentonville, almost all, if not all, along the Razorback Greenway. Online registration open until May 3rd. Registration fees range from $20 to $35. There is an optional fee for shuttle service back. There's also a virtual ride option. Much more information, many more details available at BentonvilleAR.com. And noon to moon, that's with the number two, noon to moon, Color Mountain Bike Preserve's second annual Endurance Mountain Bike Race is returning Saturday, May 6th. Participants can register for the 6- or 12-hour race solo or, and this makes more sense to me, gather a team to tackle the race together. Those who complete the most laps in their category will be awarded special prizes and medals. The 12-hour race will start at 8 a.m. Six-hour race starts at noon. New categories have been added this year, including a corporate challenge with your business teammates competing against other local co- uh, companies. More about the event can be discovered at noon to moonrace.com. That's the number two in that address, noon to moonrace.com. Think about the people closest to you. Chances are they are pretty similar to you. I think it's easy for us to underestimate how much our trajectory in life is determined by the connections that we have in terms of friends and family. How broadening your circle could make the world a more equal place. This week on Hidden Brain from NPR.
Hidden Brain, Saturday afternoon at 2, and then again Sunday morning at 6 on 91.3 KUAF. You can listen to us anywhere with the KUAF app for iPhone or iPad or by asking your smart speaker to please play KUAF. The next Fort Smith Symphony concert is until March, but there's much happening between now and then. Earlier this month, I caught up with John Jetta, the music director and conductor of the Fort Smith Symphony. We sat down at the Bakery District in downtown Fort Smith to discuss what musicians from the symphony are doing this month and next. In fact, the afternoon we met was the day before the Fort Smith String Quartet was going to travel across I-49 to perform with Amos Cochran for the January KUAF lunch hour. At the start of my visit with John Jetter, I mentioned to him it was the first time I'd been to the Bakery District in downtown Fort Smith. Yeah, it's a great space. Uh, it's getting used a ton by people just coming in and getting coffee or going to Bookish or where, wherever else. And also, I had talked to you about for after all of our symphony concerts, we have after parties. And, and the concert hall's right across the street. I'm pointing at it. People can't see it, but it's right there. And people come over after the concert and have drinks and listen to live music. And it's yeah, it's a great place. Well, I feel like I'm doing my part for your well-being by making you stop and pause and have a cup of coffee because you're so busy. And I'm looking at this list that you're holding here, and um, you're not stopping. No, no. I actually had someone last week, oh, well, there's, I don't think there's a concert till March, so, oh, you're just going to hang around? Like, yeah, right. Yeah, we have a lot going on. We have Symphony in the Schools. We're going to visit about 25 uh, elementary schools, all the public schools here in Fort Smith and most of the private schools. Uh, we're going to visit all of the third grade classes and the Fort Smith Symphony String Quartet is going to play all sorts of music, uh, everything from Florence Price to Prokofiev. I think there's some Avengers, uh, maybe Let It Go, I'm not sure exactly. And they're going to talk about music, getting involved in music, why it's good for you to do it. Um, the kids love to hear about the instruments. One of our musicians has a, a very old violin that he plays, and the kids are like, wow, you know. It was, I, I forget, it's about, uh, it's a year or two younger or older than when uh, George Washington was born. So kids are like, wow, you know. So that's cool. So that's coming up on the week of January 23rd. Then the week of February 6th, we visit all of the fourth grade uh, classes in Fort Smith, uh, public and private schools with the Cool Cats Jazz Quartet. That's great, that's history of jazz. This year we're gonna to try to include some uh, jazz uh, uh, from either Jim Pepper or Big Chief Russell Moore. We wanna include uh, some indigenous jazz composers as part of, as you know, our whole year of uh, uh, indigenous composers and, and art and uh, culminating in April in our really big project. So we have that happening and then uh, later on in February, on the 25th at 7 p.m. at the King Opera House in Van Buren, Amos is back for one of our Perspectives uh, Chamber Music Concerts, which we started this year, and it's been really, really successful. We've had three concerts so far. Or, or this will be the third one. Yeah, and it, do you mind talking just a little bit about the, the idea and the concept behind those? We wanted to uh, offer a different musical experience, something more intimate, which of course chamber music is. But uh, we've had such a great response and really there have been interesting programs. Our first concert was uh, uh, with our uh, woodwind quintet and uh, it included uh, music by Lewis Ballard, who's a focus for this year. And then our second concert was uh, with the Fort Smith Symphony String Quartet and a wonderful um, a Native American flutist named uh, Brad Clonch from uh, Oklahoma City. And that was all indigenous composers. And uh, we thought it'd be great to focus on uh, 
another person here. You know, we've talked about this for a, a many years. In classical music, maybe in other things too, it's always about celebrating someone from somewhere else. Oh, this person's from, you know, London, or this person's from, ah, well, what about what you have here? What about, what's, what, what's your culture here? Who are your people here? So this is, that's a big part of this, this year. So uh, the Perspectives concert is, I think it's gonna be very different. I mean, uh, what Amos uh, does is just very unusual. It's great. And uh, I think our audiences are gonna be in for a real treat. And then, <laughs> yes, since there's nothing going on, uh, on Saturday, March 4th at 7 p.m. at the ArcBest Performing Arts Center, we're doing a concert called What a Rush, and it, it features a piece called Whirl by Christina Spinet. Whirl as in, as in, in this case, uh, the whirling winds of tornadoes. for string orchestra. Uh, she was working on a string orchestra piece. She's a Nashville-based composer. And during the time of the composition, there were uh, lots of tornado warnings. So this ended up to be kind of a piece about tornadoes uh, written in uh, 2021. So a great new piece. Uh, the title of our concert, What a Rush, uh, centers on a piece called Rush. It's a concerto for saxophone and orchestra by Ken Fuchs. It's a great piece. I'm really excited to be performing it. Uh, you can uh, imagine a little jazz inspired and uh, it's terrific. Uh, Damien Cheek is our soloist. He's a professor at University of Arkansas Fort Smith, saxophone. Interesting, if you come to the symphony, you will have also uh, spoken to Damien on the phone or seen him in the box office. He's our, he does, uh, or he's our business manager and ticket person. Uh, but he's uh, has completed, I believe, or just about completed his doctorate in saxophone performance. He had lots of experience as a performer. Terrific. So that'll be great. And then we perform the Symphony Number no. 2 by Howard Hansen, the Romantic Symphony, written in 1930. Terrific piece. It's really one of the great American symphonies. In case you haven't noticed, it's an all-American program, 20th, 21st century music. And that's Saturday, March 4th. That is correct. Yes. And, um, oh, also... Uh, something we're kind of working on is that is the weekend we announce our 100th anniversary season, which is next year. So um, we really need to know what we're doing <laughs> for that year so we can say this is what we're doing. And of course, we have the programming figured out, but there's lots of details that I think the audience want to know about things that we need to get. So, so there's quite a bit to do. It's a rushed time. Ah, no pun intended. Oh. <laughs> It's, it's not a visit with me for you, John, until I throw a curveball question out there. Uh, yeah. So here we go. Okay. When you're thinking about a 100th anniversary season, can it be a little overwhelming? Because people will think, oh, 100, you got to knock it out of the park. Right. Not that you haven't been knocking it out of the park, but there's that expectation. Does that, I don't know if way on you is the right term, but does that enter into consideration? Yes, and it's one of those things you can't avoid. And I'm sure, I think we have a great season plan. I'm sure someone is gonna say, oh, you know, uh, we couldn't, obviously we can't have uh, Billie Eilish here. It's probably a little, little too expensive. You know, we, our, our main constraint is financial. Uh, but, but what I wanted to do is focus on the history on the orchestra, how well the orchestra is doing, and I wanted there to be a nod to where we are. We're an orchestra in the south, so that, there's that element. 
and to keep our um, promotion of people here, of artists here, here who we know, uh, there is another recording project with actually a terrific composer who will be our composer in residence that year, Patrick Conlon. And uh, he's a member of the symphony also, among many things. So yeah, it's a terrific season. Oh, I hope I didn't give too much away. I gave a little bit away, yeah. but that's all right, yeah. John Jetter is the music director and conductor of the Fort Smith Symphony. Our conversation took place at the Bakery District in downtown Fort Smith earlier this month. You can find out more about the symphony's schedule at fortsmithsymphony.org. This is Ozarks at Large. That's Charlie Hayden and Hampton Hawes doing an Ornette Coleman tune, Turnaround. And I'm Robert Ginsberg, your host for Shades of Jazz every Friday and Saturday right here on KUAF. We'll hear more from Charlie and Hampton as well as Branford Marsalis, Carol Sloan, Wallace Roney, Sonny Rollins, and much more. Tune in this week for Shades of Jazz. Shades of Jazz with Robert Ginsberg can be heard twice each week. First, you can listen Friday night at 10 on KUAF 91.3. Then you can hear an encore broadcast Saturday from 11 a.m. until 1 p.m. on KUAF 3. You can find KUAF 3 and its nearly 100% jazz programming at KUAF.com with your digital radio or by asking your smart speaker to please play KUAF 3. Tomorrow on our show, we go into the Garner Performance Studio for music from Circle of Thirds. Talks with Ozarks at Large's Timothy Dennis and will perform for us in our studio. That's tomorrow at noon and 7 p.m. on KUAF and on the free Ozarks at Large podcast. The Northwest Arkansas Beekeepers Association will host a free two-part class in Fayetteville from 6 until 9 Monday night, then again Monday, February 6th. Classes will take place at the Don Tyson Center for Agricultural Sciences located in Fayetteville. The classes are open to all beginners and anyone wishing to learn more about the art of beekeeping. There is no charge for the class, and you can join the Northwest Arkansas Beekeepers Association at the event for a $15 membership fee. Adult nights at the Scott Family Amazium are back in 2023. The Amazium invites guests to enjoy a kid-free, 21-and-up event February 2nd from 6 to 8 p.m. Guests will tinker, create, learn, and have fun. Information and tickets at amazium.org. Just announced, experimental American musician Beck comes to the Walmart Amp with indie pop band Phoenix, returning to Northwest Arkansas for one night only, Friday, August 18th. Tickets go on sale this Friday at 10 a.m. at amptickets.com. This is 91.3 KUAF, Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Bentonville, and Waldron. 
KUAF is a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. Ozarks at Large is a production of KUAF. Contributors today included Anna Pope, Rachel Sanchez-Smith, Josie Lenora, and Mark Christ. Our theme is written and performed by Daryl Sean. Today's show put together inside the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio at the Carver Center for Public Radio in downtown Fayetteville. And my big thanks to the David and Barbara Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral and Visual History for inviting me to co-host, along with Randy Dixon from the Pryor Center, tonight's in-person version of what Randy and I do here each Monday in the show, the Pryor Center Profiles. That's when we use Pryor Center archives to examine the history of our state. Our presentation tonight is from 6 to 7 and focuses on many different figures and events from the past several decades. Randy and I have done this before, but it was online. Tonight, also online. But we're incredibly excited to have these events in person at the Prior Center on the Fayetteville Square. You can come if you feel safe doing that, and it's absolutely free. By the way, yes, we are still online with this presentation, too. If you'd rather watch that way or if you'd rather watch at a later date for uh, more information how to join us online, either now or in the future, you can go to the Prior Center website for more information. If you want to know more about Ozarks at Large, you can go online as well, ozarksatlarge.com. There we have full episodes of our show as well as individual stories and interviews that you can listen to and also share through social media and email. Oh, and by the way, Randy Dixon will be back with us on Monday's edition of Ozarks at Large with a brand new trip through archives this week. He says he's going to tell the story of Daisy BB guns manufactured in Rogers. From all of us at Ozarks at Large and KUAF, thanks for your continued support. You can keep up with us with the Ozarks at Large daily email newsletter. It's free. It lands in your email inbox every Monday through Friday, giving you links to everything that was on the previous day's show and more. From the Carver Center for Public Radio, I'm Kyle Kellums. Stay warm. Be well.